So I made the statement that, that God, the way we see God is um, we have a bit of a stigmatism when we try to see God. Um, many of the reasons that we, some have stayed away, which is their prerogative, uh, their right, I'm not questioning that. Uh, unfortunately, according to our hermeneutic, we've been indoctrinated and trained that it's an either-or agenda at all times. Amen, somebody. Uh, but within the scope of hermeneutics, uh, there is this concept of both and and. And that many things are not either-or or neither-nor. Some things are just simply both and. And so we could easily say that those who decided to do their services online, believing that it was the leading of the Holy Spirit of God, for all we know, somebody might have been in there coughing too hard this morning. And so God led them in a different way. But then God can also conscientiously make a different decision for Mountain View and say, no, I'm going to lead your leader and leadership to hold a physical service. So neither one is either right nor wrong. They are both just simply following the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. So this is not an indictment against anybody who's online this morning. And I don't want you to take it that way. And so I say before, and I place this disclaimer, that because we are together this morning, we will address it as such. Is that okay? Because I know where we're headed. We're going to start questioning those who did the online as though they did not have enough faith and trust in God to believe that God A, B, C, or D. Is that okay? And so let's not get into the finger pointing. We don't want them thinking that we just some careless folk that just have some blind faith. No, we just followed the moving of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's critically important to understand because as we are trying to develop a deeper understanding, less understanding about churchology and more about theology, amen, somebody, that's a difference. Now, you might want to write that down um, because most of us are fully indoctrinated when it comes to churchology. How do you know? Because if I were to ask you, what does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18? You could quote it all day long. But if I ask you, what did Jesus do with Jairus' daughter? What condition was she in before he got there? And what condition was she in when he left? The sad conclusion to draw is that we are faced now with the reality that we know more about churchology than we do about Christology. And this whole dynamic has to do with Christology and not churchology. Amen, uh, somebody. Uh, and so let's just take a little bit of a quick biblical journey, as quick as we can get it. I got a timetable I'm trying to work within uh, because of what you all have going on today. So God doesn't stand in the midst of time. That's the first thing that has to be understood. That God ordained time, but, that, but God did not, when he ordained time, restrict himself by time. We are the ones right now in this condition, this living condition, who are encapsulated by past, present, and future. God is not. 
Amen, somebody. That should help somebody when you start in your prayer life praying to God and you're asking God to give you a blessing. Understand you're operating within certain parameters that limit you because of time-spatial continuum. Amen, somebody. Scientific term for you, amen, somebody. But because God is not limited by time, God can step into time and place what we need at any corresponding part along the way. Does that make sense? Okay, so that becomes critically important because when God in the beginning creates the heavens and the earth, know that God steps on the scene and he removes chaos. So the first thing God does in the time continuum is he limits chaos's influence on his people. So when the Bible says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the earth, water in the ancient Near East, water was a symbol of calamity and chaos. And so when the Hebrews would hear of the story of God moving across the face of the waters, they would understand that God has come to challenge chaos uh, by his own presence. God created in the midst of chaos. Theology number one that should say to you that no matter how chaotic your life may become, no matter how much storm comes your way, you have a God that can step into calamity and you have a base of recognition from the beginning. So it doesn't matter what's going on, no matter how chaotic your life may become, understand that you serve a God who in the beginning stepped in and he pulled back chaos. Amen, somebody. Because see, some folk right now going through the midst, most of us right now are always trying to live our life dealing in the context of crisis. If you really understood theology 101, you would know that whenever conflict arises, whenever chaos strikes up its ugly head, you serve a God. You are in relationship with a God who can deal with chaos in such a way that he ain't got to find a solution You and I waste all of our time in the context of our crisis trying to find a solution. And so God in the midst of chaos creates creation. And so in the midst of all of that, God does something striking that we don't necessarily play the, the close enough attention to. Because in the midst of his creation, he creates a place called Eden. Eden, by definition, means pleasurable place. It means something along the line of the place of my pleasure. And so when God creates this garden, he claims over it. It is the place wherein I am pleased. God, in the midst of creation, always creates an environment that is conducive to his goodwill and his pleasure. You got to understand that because the evil one does. That's why every time God creates a place wherein he can be pleased, the evil one enters in and disrupts God's good pleasure. Just a little theology 101, okay? 
And so God creates this special place. And within the confines of this special place, he places a special people. One of the things about being in relationship with God is the clear understanding that you are God's special person. Y'all, y'all, okay. I know folk done, listen, y'all, listen. They might have to stop the recording right here because I don't want any white brethren getting their feathers in a ruffle because this way I'm a bit, be a bit Chris. See, the problem is that we have, and if I could just be totally honest and candid with you, okay, our millennials and generation, uh, whatever that is after them, I lose all the lettering and it starts, you know, but it's what it is. They are in, in, in many of them are in some degree of rejection of this Jesus character um, that they are being presented. Uh, they are in full rejection mode. Most of them don't want to be a part of organized religion. Most of them are rejecting uh, the scriptures as the library of God. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all got young, y'all got young folk in your family that's challenging this way. Now, understand something. I'm not a, I, I try not to be an alarmist. I'm not really a panic-driven person because of my fight or flight. You know, I'm not a I'm not a runner. And so when I panic, the only option I've got available to me is to fight. And that's been my programming through the earlier development of my life. Everything was a fight. And so whenever I felt anxious and panicky, you know, it was time to get. That was that Pleasant Grove in me, man. It was just time to come. You know, come, y'all understand. So I'll leave that right there where it is. Um, but when you and I begin to understand the relationship that we have with God and the depth of relationship that's available to us through God, you begin to understand just how special you are to God. We have a bad theology. If you were to take an objective view of how many black theologians we have, the numbers are startlingly low. They are dismal. And the reason is, is because black theology, black thinking toward God, that's all that means, trying to understand God through the lens of your own cultural experience, that's what that means, Amen, somebody. The Jews understand God in a certain way based on their cultural, amen, somebody. Europeans understand God through the lens of their cultural expression. But the minute it comes to us here in America, it has always been frowned upon. So we have always been fed our theological view rather than develop our own theological view. And so I'm not ashamed and intimidated by folk who are in full rejection mode uh, of America's Jesus. Because in moments like this, America's white Jesus ain't enough.
I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I, I don't mean no harm, and I'm not, like I said, I already put my disclaimer. Y'all see the fine print at the bottom of the contract. Um, but what happens is we begin to realize that the Jesus that we've come to believe is not strong enough. That's why I asked Gerald to sing that particular song, because that particular song reminds me that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now, that includes the knees of coronavirus. For me, it does. Uh, because Paul, in his writings, actually personifies the evil in this land. He says that it's a being, not a disease. And if it is a being at the very invocation of the name of Jesus, even Corona got to go find its life. Because Jesus, see that's, that's because the theology has been so bad for and so I'm on this pilgrimage. Y'all ain't got to come along with me. Y'all ain't got to travel with me. But quite honestly, and I'm sorry to say this over the airway because a lot of people is tuning in. But I'm trying to find the Jesus that has, does not have white southern male Republican hands on it. saying if you're a Republican, God bless you. I ain't telling you what your political view should be. I'm just simply saying from a theological understanding, from a theological perspective, I believe I am intelligent enough, I believe even you are intelligent enough to begin to try to understand God for yourself without it having been tempered and tampered with culturally. Now I'm not trying to put myself out of a job, I'm just simply saying Listen to me now. All this that just went on up here ain't nothing but a cultural argument. It's not a biblical argument. The early church didn't have no soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. So how you gonna argue over a bass mic and it ain't no bass? Wasn't even no electricity. Ain't no microphone. That's not a biblical argument. That's a cultural argument. My white family, they're they are people of the stream. My black family is people of the drum. That's why we love accentuating the bass line on everything. Salvation has been brought down. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stick with Tanner. You sing better bass than me anyway, Tanner. Because you're starting to mess with me. I'm about to get you. I'm about to say that's because I'm... Never mind, I'm leaving alone. <laughs> Y'all have to understand, Carol and I, uh, you know, that's my cousin. And we go back and we go forth. Now she can give a little bit, 
but we both know when it's over. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm just saying, just so you know. Um, and so the problem that we're having is, is that we don't understand God clearly enough for ourselves. I can't unpack all of that, um, but it's becoming more and more you know, pervasive in our understanding. As black preachers, what we had to do historically is become very adept and very talented and good at saying what other folk were telling us needed to be said. We just needed to learn how to say it well enough so that we could climb a little bit. Okay, y'all don't, y'all. Yeah, I'm just trying, I'm trying. He took all the sermon notes, so y'all have to just bear with me. And so God has always allowed himself to be understood. As a matter of fact, God wanted to ordain his own culture. Amen, somebody. So let me show you what that looks like. So the serpent comes into the garden, violates God's place of his good pleasure. He is assisted by God's pinnacle of creation, which is male and female, Adam and Eve. God wasn't caught off guard. God understood that there was going to have to be a process by which that once the evil one, which according to Paul, sin and death are personified as two actual beings. There is a being called sin. And so when you see in Paul's letters uh, especially in Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, especially Romans, when he used the word sin, that is actually supposed to be, according to most scholars, a capital S, which means that that is actually a being's name. And so we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we are wrestling against a spiritual being who is trying to do everything that it can. Amen, somebody, y'all see? And so death is viewed as... If you need, if you're a reader, Michael Heiser's book on the unseen realm is a very powerful book. Uh, you probably need to read it along with somebody because it is a book that goes kind of, you know, kind of, but it is illuminating. Simply illuminating because it allows you and I to understand that we're not just wrestling against and struggling against some principle called sin. We are actually engaged in a wrestling match against an actual being. And the only way the victory is had is not through the flesh, it is had through the spirit. That's what he's talking about. Amen. Uh, somebody. So that should help you understand that what you are dealing with, it may manifest itself in your flesh, but understand you are trying to wrestle and defeat it through your spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit of God is so important because it is by his strength and his power that you and I are able to defeat our enemy sin and death. And so you know good church Christ doctrine spends little time dealing with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, amen somebody, we are still wrestling with many of the same demonic influences that we've been wrestling with all of our lives. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amen. 
Okay, that was two coughs in a row, not three, so don't be alarmed. <laughs> it's allergy season. And so this is what you and I are confronted with. This is what we are dealing with. This is what we are trying to overcome. And the only way it is overcome is when your spirit is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. It begins to cause those unclean spirits to have to bend, not to your power and not to your might, but rather the Holy Spirit that God has given to dwell within you. That's the reason why Paul goes on record and says there is a power that worketh in you. So, what God has decided is that after he could not, his viola the violation that had happened in Eden, God later on determined that he would again attempt to be among a people. He chose Abraham. Now, the chosenness of God, I ain't got time to unpack. God is so God that he ain't got to select the best that he can find God can actually take the worst available. That becomes Paul's mantra. I'm the chief of. I'm the worst of. And if God can do it with me, imagine what he could do. That becomes his, his, his argument, right? So God decides that he's going to do that. So when God steps on the scene... After having made the promise to Abraham, God steps on the scene and reveals himself in, in bright and living color uh, in the book of Exodus. God steps on the scene and introduces himself not to Egypt, who is at that point in time the world power, the center of civilization. You can still look at that today, amen, through archaeological studies. It was the pinnacle civilization of its time. God steps on that scene because when God steps on that scene, every other civilization is going to know that God then stepped on stage. And so God, through the plagues, reveals to not only the Egyptians and not only the Gentile world, he reveals himself to a people who have as their ancestor Abraham. God says, I'm going to show you that I am your God and you are my people. So that's what God is attempting to do with Israel, right? Everybody still with me? So with Israel, God reveals himself. God lets them know that I want to dwell in your presence. And the symbol of my presence within you, your community, not your church, your community, because that's actually the word, not the word church, it is actually the word community that we would use for community because it was a communal dwelling place. Amen, somebody. How do you know? Because according to the Jewish, amen, somebody, law, what they would do is whenever the tabernacle, which became the symbol of God's presence among his people, whenever it was time to, to erect the tabernacle, all other tribes would build their camps with the tabernacle in the center. That's why we sing songs that Jesus, you're the center of my church. God wants to be in the center of his people. And so they would erect all of their camps around the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, all of the doorways, all of the openings in the tent face the tabernacle. 
that becomes the precursor for the Shema. The Shema was all about them walking out, their coming and their going, looking in the face of the symbol of God's presence among them. See, one of the major points we have, Theology 101, is that the only time we think we come into the presence of God is when we come together to worship. Now, when you step out your house in the morning on your way to work, there should be a symbolic presence of God in your midst that allows you to understand that you, in your comings and your goings, your life is reflecting that you see God. Amen, somebody, I'm just saying. And so, um, having God's presence, that's what he wanted. But Israel violated it. They violated what it means to have God dwelling in their midst. And so God had to put a rejection on them. Uh, actually, the fulfillment uh, of a prophecy that God gave through Moses that if they were faithful, God would bless every part of their life. If they were unfaithful, God would curse every part of their life. And so we get the temple scene, we get the church scene in the midst of this thing we call church. We missed it because we think that the nexus, the conduit, the connection place with God is, is church, and it's not. A amen, somebody. Jacob's ladder, that was the nexus. Remember the ladder, angels going up and down. It is believed by some scholars that on that same space, there became, in that region was the tabernacle, and on that place was built the temple. Jerusalem became the center point of that, which was the nexus between God and man. Amen, somebody. Temple gets destroyed when Jesus says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it again. What Jesus was actually setting forth was, is that the conduit now between man and God was no longer going to be a physical space, but be based upon a relationship with him. So now when Jesus, the temple is moved out of the, the way, Jesus now becomes the conduit between humanity and God, thereby God dwelling in our midst. And so when we believe, uh, unfortunately, when we believe that this is the conduit we're in, we connect with God, we actually go back and replace what God had already torn down. As a matter of fact, I would be very careful with doing that because by doing that, God may view that as an entire rejection of Jesus when we would rather have the church than the Christ. And so you and I have come together this morning in full view of everything that's going on in our land, and we're trying to make a, a bold declaration in the midst of all of this panic. Amen, somebody. Amen. Listen, let me tell you, go on and say this for the record. Uh, unless the Lord returns, all of us are going to catch a fatal case of death. You're going to catch it. Amen, somebody. But we are not worried about it. The reason is, is because we have learned or are learning what it means to dwell 
in the presence uh, of God. Amen. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, I was going to preach this morning. I was. I had got my voice all warmed up. I was drinking a whole bunch of water, and then he did that. And so I just had to just talk to you. But I hope my talking to you has allowed you to kind of understand a few things a little bit more clearly. Perhaps in another time, in another venue, if God says the same, I'll be able to unpack a few more of those nuances to help you to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. I know some of the things that I said are a bit... Uh, could be a bit construed a bit controversial, especially when it comes to the racial cultural dynamic that we have going on today. Amen, somebody. Uh, can I? Do you know when Jesus became? White. No, no, this is this a this a this a interesting. Okay, I'm sorry. I find stuff interesting, man. When 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 the South lost the Civil War. Prior to that time, the, 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 the racial dynamic of Jesus wasn't really relevant. But when the South lost the Civil War, they created a Jesus that would be sympathetic to their condition. The natural outcome is not to have a brown-skinned man, but to have a blonde-blue-eyed that would be sympathetic to... Okay, y'all don't see it, okay. The real reason for the break and the split believed by most scholars who have objectivity uh, between the disciples of Christ, which I was going to deal with uh, this morning a little bit, uh, but those, we, we were, this movement uh, was birthed out of the Restoration Movement, the Second Great Awakening, uh, three champions in that were Alexander Campbell. Some of you may have heard that name. His son, Thomas Campbell. I mean, uh, Thomas Campbell, the father. Alexander Campbell, the son. And Barton W. Stone. They all came out of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, they were from Scotland. They were Scots Presbyterian. But Presbyterianism lends itself heavy to John Calvin, Calvinism. Two of the tenets of Calvinism, one of them in particular, they rejected, which is the... Uh, concept of predestination. Some of you have heard of that before. That means that God fashions you ahead of time and he predetermines, predestines whether or not you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And there's nothing that you can do in the confines of this terrestrial plane to change your eternal destination. They rejected that. But they held on to the Presbyterian belief and motif of a group of men, presbyters, elders, having oversight or governing over the local church. It wasn't a biblical model. It was a Presbyterian model. Amen, somebody. Presbyterian model says that there's a group of men who have governance over the affairs of the church, and they determine, not the man of God, they determine what the church will and will not do. That's Presbyterianism. That's not biblical. 
so in the midst of all of that, through that developmental process, came known as Disciples of Christ, it took on, because it was held right across the Mason-Dixon line, amen somebody, everybody knows what that is, today we call it the Bible Belt. Back then it was the Mason-Dixon line, it was the line that divided the north from the south. The issue of, of, of slavery was a hot topic nationally, and the disciples of Christ, of course, had to deal with the issue. There were a population who were abolitionists. Slavery is wrong. There was a population that, at the very least, was neutral, if not the owners of human beings. When the rift happened, those that were abolitionists found more support above the Mason-Dixon line and eventually became known as the Christian Church. And those who had the sympathies for slavery stayed in the South below the Mason-Dixon line and became known as the Churches of Christ. So I'm just simply saying all of these kinds of things, not to be an alarmist, but I'm trying to help you understand why it is critical and why it is important that we begin to understand God for ourselves because when he was delivered to us, they already had the scales tipped in favor against us. So I'm not telling us to go anywhere. I'm not suggesting that we change any names. I'm not suggesting that we have anarchy. I'm just simply saying, be informed to the point that you can understand God for So, I, I digress. I apologize if I went a little uh, in directions that I just said, you know, it was the Holy Spirit. Um, it had to be said. It needs to be said. Somebody got to say it. Um, because if not, after this generation of us who uh, are stalwarts in the church, uh, eventually our leadership ain't going to have nobody to lead. Uh, because we are not effectively dealing with and challenging the issues that are going on in and around us in an effective way. Burying our head in the sand or just saying that's the way it always was and why are you trying to create all this trouble, those are not effective and efficient answers to those types of questions. We got to get real, amen somebody, uh, and the information is there. And there's no reason to hide from it. Amen, somebody. I, I mean, we still Lexington Woods Church of Christ for right now. I mean, but, but we still Lexington Woods Church of Christ. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I just understand what all of the nuances. I now know the product that I'm trying to present to people when I'm trying to offer them fellowship within the community that I serve. Amen, somebody. I mean, ain't that, isn't that honest? Okay, I'm sorry. I, Jay, I'm sorry. I lost him, man. Uh, God bless you. Uh, amen. Boy, was that thought-provoking or what? Everybody stand to your feet.
no matter what your color is, there's, uh, there's a view of Jesus based on the human experience. But no matter what your human experience is, God, Jesus, the Lord, the Holy Spirit brings us into unity by telling us in order to divest yourself of your human experience and take on his life, we have to put him on. For there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, Galatians chapter 3, male or female, for all are one in Christ. All are one in Christ. Not interpreting Christ in ways based on our experience, but interpreting him based on how God presents him. And if you are going to be saved today and part of the new culture, it'll be because in faith you repented of your sins.